Last time on The Immaculate Deception, Joey Hoofman went to confront Dr. Jan Corbat at his clinic. And that was like 500 meters where I had my gym. Really? Yeah. So you had been so close all the time? Yeah. He suspected that the fertility doctor who treated his mother might also be his father. He turned up at Corbat's gate looking for answers. And when he rang the bell, Rita, the doctor's wife, answered. I said, could I speak to the doctor? Oh yeah, if you could come back another time, then we can give you a tour here, no problem. Two days later, Joey heard the news that Jan Karbat was dead. We now know that Joey is living proof of one of Europe's biggest medical frauds. Karbat used his own sperm to father at least 60 children without their mother's knowledge or consent. None of the people conceived through his deception will ever be able to ask Karbat why he did what he did. And neither will I. I can't meet him face to face to see if he's a doctor who wanted results at any cost, an opportunist who got rich taking shortcuts, or a narcissist. I think he has a God complex. But there is someone who did get to challenge Jan Karbat right at the end of his life. In 2016, the journalist Camille Baluk rang the doctor's doorbell. And once again, Rita came to answer it. After like a few minutes, she let me in. I was just waiting there and she went inside asking Jan Karbat if he wants to talk to me. Like really reluctantly, she was like sort of insisting not to. But he was like so happy. He was like, oh, of course, yeah. Karbat gave Camille his last ever in-depth interview. Six thousand kinder. Six thousand kinder. Like six thousand people are living in the Netherlands because of us. I'm Jenny Kleeman, and from something else, this is the Immaculate Deception, Episode Three: The Last Interview. If there's a, I was just wondering if if I would have problem with like a specific word in stop. English, we can we can yeah. Camille is a yeah. Polish journalist, you, but he specializes in reporting like Dutch stories. He was in Rotterdam while we were in sure, town, sure. so he came to meet us at our hotel. And we're going to be asking for quite a lot of detail about sure. stuff, so don't feel that it's. The story of Camille and Corbat begins long before they met. By the time Camille summoned the courage to ring the doctor's doorbell, he had already spent two years researching every detail of Carbat's life. And the more he looked, the more he saw Carbat everywhere. I remember that I went to buy uh, bread. The bakery was established in 1927 and I just saw it and I was like, oh, that's Carbat's birth year. So uh, <laughs> everything was connected. Yeah, everything all of a was. Sudden. There is even like a final metro stop in Warsaw in Poland called Kabate, which sounds sort of like Carbat. And I was like, You were obsessed. Yeah. It's official. <laughs> yeah, it's official. I was officially obsessed. Camille first came across the doctor's name in 2014 when he was sitting in the cafe where he likes to work, hunting around for new story ideas. 
I had this um, routine of reading Dutch and Flemish newspapers. And something caught his eye. A piece of very bad journalism. <laughs> the title of the article was Spermafia. Sperm Mafia. They said that there was this sperm bank and things weren't as they, uh, as they were believed to be. I got hold of the article Camille was telling me about. It's from a Belgian supermarket tabloid called Humo. The headline might be trashy, but the details are eye-popping. It was quite a story. It described a private fertility clinic just outside Rotterdam that had used dodgy medical practices. The administration was a shambles and, it said, the tanks where frozen sperm were stored were leaking. But the most shocking detail to emerge from the clinic at that time was the story of one donor whose sperm had been used time and again over decades. The biggest story was around Louis. We met Louis in the last episode. He was one of Carbat's most prolific sperm donors, a man determined to make his mark on the gene pool. He's now known to have fathered at least 70 children. They have over 30 grandchildren. So for the moment, I have 100 descendants. Project succeeded? Oh, yes. Humo spoke to a former patient at the clinic who'd been told her donor was married with two children and had a high-powered job at a bank. When her kids grew up and searched for their impressive father, they discovered Louis. The magazine spoke to other women who'd also been given the wrong information about their donors. The clinic sounded utterly chaotic. Camille went on to write a book called All Louis' Children, which focused on Louis the super donor and the donor children who now exist because of him. But while he was researching it, he became fascinated by the doctor who allowed it all to happen. There was this man behind it who was supposed to be a you know, responsible doctor. Camille had a voracious appetite for anything he could find on Dr. Jan Karbat. He read his PhD thesis cover to cover. He even devoured obscure articles Karbat had written for medical journals, including one on how remote communities in South America were being attacked by vampire bats. And what was it about Karbat that fascinated you, that made you want to start researching him? I mean, it's a pretty fascinating story. Yeah. I, I can oh relate to wanting, to wanting to investigate it. But you did a pretty <laughs> deep dive, didn't you? I, I sort of had this idea of a villain from movies, from a children's book or something like that. I, I was like, I just had this weird figure of the guy in my mind. I really wanted to confront him. By 2016, Camille was armed with enough research. The time had come to approach the doctor himself. And I was really scared. I was like, I know a little bit too much about this guy. The Humo article had made Carbat notorious. He was all over the news, alongside allegations of questionable medical practices, terrible record-keeping and broken promises. Some of the coverage from that time is pretty sensational. One headline says, 500 women pregnant by men who should never have been donors. And another one, wait a minute, I'll get you some fresh sperm. Carbat didn't seem to be giving interviews. There was the odd statement here and there where he admitted to administrative errors, but nothing more. 
I was very stressed. I didn't really know what to what to say to convince him. I felt like, okay, but what if it's not going to happen? What if he would never let me in? And I have so many questions. Camille made three separate trips to the clinic at Barendrecht, where Corbat had worked and still lived. That bright yellow building with the metal stalk on the roof. Twice, he went home without even ringing the bell. I was passing by for like the fourth time or whatever, and I um, and I saw Rita Corbat. Just like Joey, Camille found his path to the doctor blocked by Corbat's wife. Rita told Camille that Corbat wasn't talking to journalists anymore. And I was like, I travel all the way from Poland, please. And she was like, yeah, come back in the afternoon or something. And I came back and uh, after like a few minutes, she let me in and we went together to the main entrance door. And I was just waiting there. She went inside asking uh, Jan Kerbat if if he wants to talk to me. Like, really reluctantly, she was, like, sort of insisting not to. But he was, like, so happy. He was like, oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, what was oh going no. On there? What was going on there? Do you think she was trying to protect him? Yeah, I mean... I'm pretty sure that, that she just knew him and she knew that that he's gonna tell me something that uh, she would find inappropriate. So what happened? You went in and you saw him. When I entered, I heard Surfing USA by the Beach Boys. He offered wine, but I was like, no. <laughs> he, did, he did drink wine, by the way. I stick to tea. He looked like a, like an old man. He had this very deep voice, like a strong regional accent. He had this machine that helped him because he said like that, uh, my muscles don't listen to me anymore, so I need this. Did he look very frail? I think he totally knew that, you know, every week could be his last week. Now what I have to do is to record Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Camille Ballack had made it through the clinic gates, past Carbat's wife, and was now drinking tea with the doctor. This was his chance to finally put questions directly to Carbat. How 
how many children were conceived per donor in his clinic? Did he care about the identity struggles of the children he helped create? And would he admit to using his own sperm? How would Carbat even begin to justify himself? Carbat and Camille weren't alone during the interview. Rita Carbat, she was like walking in and out the whole time. As well as being his wife, Rita had also been Carbat's assistant at the clinic. I had the impression that she really didn't want me to be there, but he insisted. The first question was like, how did you start? What did he say? He said that uh, after the medical school, there were no job opportunities in, in the Netherlands. So because he already had a family, they moved to Suriname. Suriname, a small country covered by rainforest on the northeast coast of South America. Carbat would have moved there in the 1950s. It was a Dutch colony at the time. There was this big need of Dutch doctors in Suriname. Carbat was an army doctor based in the capital, Paramaribo, with his young family. He told Camille that was where his career in fertility medicine began, with a knock on his front door. One day, there were those two really poor women, and uh, they knocked at my door and asked me, Dr. Carbat, my husband is infertile. Please help me. Why would they knock on his door? I mean, he was from the Netherlands and he was uh, a doctor. I don't know, doctor, help me. My man is infertile. We want to have children. And he was like, I had this chauffeur. He had blue eyes. He was black. That's not very typical. He was like a sort of a magical guy. Oh, And then the other day, Dr. Kerbat, while driving through Paramaribo in Suriname, uh, he asked the chauffeur, I have a request for you. And the chauffeur replied, What's that, Dr. Kerbat? I'm ready to help. And Kerbat said, I need your sperm. So his first artificial insemination was using the sperm of his driver in Suriname. Yeah. His, and then his, did he do it again in Suriname? Yeah, he um, he told me that for some years, a lot of women in, in Paramaribo and, and other cities would uh, visit him. They'd come to his door, ring his bell and ask for his help. He told Camille that for 10 years, he gave help to every woman who approached him, inseminating them from his practice. This isn't IVF, of course, it's much simpler. It's the process of putting sperm into a woman's body in the hope that it will fertilise her egg. We're talking about the 50s here. Fertility medicine didn't exist as a specialist field back then. It was shrouded in shame and secrecy. People called artificial insemination adultery by doctor. If you needed help conceiving, you'd just go to your family doctor who did what he could, depending on his resources, experience and willingness to push boundaries. And artificial insemination has always had a chequered history from the very beginning. 
The first reported case took place in Philadelphia in 1884 on a woman who was said to have been knocked unconscious with chloroform and then inseminated with the sperm of a medical student. Nine months later, when she gave birth, she had no idea her husband wasn't the biological father of her baby. Fertility medicine is a field where women have no choice but to trust that their doctor is behaving ethically. In 1965, Carbat's contract expired and he returned to the Netherlands so his young children could get a Dutch education. He worked in a hospital in The Hague for two or three months, performing inseminations there too. Eventually, he landed a top-level job as the director of a hospital in Rotterdam called Zyder Zuckenhaus. In the 70s, the two most important things for him were running a Zyder Zuckenhaus, uh, so like quite a big public hospital in Rotterdam, and uh, running um, the biggest uh, abortion clinic in the country. Which is interesting because we might think that as a fertility doctor, he was so much about creating new people. Carbat was making a name for himself as the go-to man for both abortions and artificial insemination. He appeared in Dutch documentaries and newspaper articles, often pictured in front of freezers full of sperm. He was heralded as a pioneer of a new radical field of medicine. I would say he was like a golden child of, of his era. I wonder if any of them are here. Carbat, Jan Carbat, let me see. Ooh, here's something in Dutch. My producer Paul and I had a look online and found some clips of Carbat during this time. And we found something we didn't expect to find so easily on YouTube. So I imagine this is Carbat's hospital in Rotterdam. Door deze donor inseminatie de mensen een gelukkige leven te bezorgen. Donor inseminati. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god, I can't believe I'm watching this. It is a man masturbating. It's been pixelated, a man with very bushy pubes masturbating by the desk here. Then a guy with a moustache gets out a sperm sample in a jar and hands it to a nurse. And we see Carbat with a patient. Oh my God, and he's, this is in this video on YouTube, he's putting a speculum into a woman. She's lying back on the table. The table's kind of reclining, but angled up so she can see what's happening. He's cranking the speculum open. Well, I mean, she's looking as relaxed as you can be when you're having a gynecological examination uh, and being filmed. I can't imagine anything that I would want less. He's got a big smile on his face. He seems to be delighted to be being filmed. No, no. Across Europe and the US, the field of fertility treatment was exploding in popularity. It was a new world of possibilities for childless couples. The men who could perform this cutting-edge medicine, and it was always men, were celebrated and revered. Those doctors were sort of heroes. They really felt that they were hel helping people. In 1980, Cobat left his job at the hospital. He didn't tell Camille why exactly, and opened his private clinic in an old farmhouse in Barendrecht. He boasted to Camille that patients flocked from all over the world for treatment, from Greece, Yugoslavia, Italy, Germany, France, even Colombia. 
Some women, he said, hopped on a plane to be inseminated and then flew straight home. No. Oh, there's the clinic with the stalk on the roof. We found another documentary from the 90s. <sighs> and the farm that he had. Deze, die komt echt van het eiland... Uh, 1,83, yeah. and he's what's kleiner. He's in. Is that his wife? Is that Rita? I think that's Rita, isn't it? Yeah, that's Rita. So they seem to be going through paperwork here. Rita and Jan Karbat. She's got her glasses on. He's making some notes. In another scene, Karbat is interviewed alone in an office. Right, so I've got some of this translated here. He says, it's like a sport when it succeeds. It's kind of like hunting. It's a bit of a challenge, he says. You try to fulfil a woman's wishes as quickly as possible to get her much-desired baby. He makes fertility treatment sound like a game. He doesn't mention making families or dealing with vulnerable people who are putting all their trust in their doctor. That audience with Carbat in 2016 was Camille's only shot at getting answers from the doctor. He still had tough questions he wanted to put to Carbat about how he managed or mismanaged his clinic. Sipping tea while the Beach Boys played in the background, he did his best to hold the doctor to account without causing a scene. I asked him, what was the maximum number of uh, children per donor in your clinic? Remember, Louis donated thousands of times and fathered at least 70 children. He said, that I know of, 18. And I was like, that you know of? And you're like, documentation? And he was like, yeah, 18, 16. Camille also asked about anonymity and whether Carbat thought the children he helped conceive had any right to know who their donors were. He said that he did try to reveal the identity to some parents or even that once he even introduced a donor to a, a single woman and that was like the biggest mistake he ever made. Ik had een professor verwacht en jij bent mijn verpleger. Carbat said she'd somehow got the idea her donor was a doctor. When she discovered he wasn't, she was furious and disappointed. So he said that after that, he decided that he's not experimenting with non-anonymity. But anonymity was useful to Carbat, wasn't it? Oh. It gave him an enormous amount of power. It meant he could run his clinic in this completely shambolic way and it wouldn't matter. Camille was determined to get Carbat to face the truth that so many of the people conceived in his clinic were left searching for their identities. What do you think, Mr. Carbat, about donor children who are now, you know, in their 20s, 30s? They are looking for their half-siblings, their donor fathers. And he was like, I didn't think about it at that time. So I just wanted one thing. My clients had to be happy. Client pregnant, client happy, end of the story. So you think Carbat thought, I gave these people life, they should be happy to be alive, why are they complaining hmm? about this piece of their identity that's missing? I asked him, like, how was it to have the beginning of one's life in your hands? And he was like, oh, no, 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 don't ask such questions. It's, it's like, that was technical. I was just doing my job. I didn't feel anything like that. 
He didn't revel in that power. No. This sentence was sort of, I believed he didn't lie, it was true. He he just didn't perceive him as the creator. He perceived him as a successful businessman and successful medical doctor, proud of the results. So you think that he did what he did because he was just focused on driving straight ahead, getting the results, and he didn't like rules. Yeah, he was a guy who didn't like rules, who wanted to be as effective as possible. Because the way you describe him, I hear somebody who's a libertarian, who has this kind of political belief that human beings should be subject to the least rules possible and should be allowed to do what they do so long as it doesn't harm anybody. And he clearly didn't think there was any harm in what he was doing. No, I I think think he ignored uh, any potential harm. The clinic closed on New Year's Day 2009. Carbat was in his 80s then and still determined to practice. He told Camille that the authorities in The Hague ordered him to shut it down. All the machines we have are too old and most of all, I am too old. So they said, that's the end of the clinic. Carbat was left shuffling around the building where he'd once created countless lives. The treatment rooms had been rented out as apartments. He was still brimming with confidence and self-belief, but his glory days were over. The doctor who once represented the future of fertility medicine was now living out his final months in a motorised chair. Carbat was out of touch. Fertility treatment had moved on, and so had genetic screening. He never envisaged a world where people would take DNA tests for fun. During our interview, it was like pure nonsense. He said that he doesn't believe in DNA testing. What's there not to believe about DNA testing? He said like, oh, I saw so many situations when the DNA evidence was just false and then somebody checked again and no, I just don't believe it. So I'm pretty sure that in 60s, 70s, maybe even 80s, that was still new, he believed that no one would tell that he used his own sperm. Then he had to find a way, like, how to cope with the situation that there are people who have this evidence, right? If he was confronted with those children that are his, that have his distinctive features. Oh, yeah. How would he explain that? Oh, my God. I wish I know. Uh, Heart attack, I think. Camille told me he did ask Carbat if he ever used his own sperm to inseminate his patients, and Carbat shrugged it off. That bit's not in the transcript he gave us of his taped interview. He might have asked it when the tape wasn't recording. How did you leave it with Carbat? I, I was so emotional that that I didn't really uh, have more questions. I, I just realized that it's not going to happen because he's going to lie to me. Camille's time was up. Even if Carbat hadn't answered his questions honestly, the encounter had been revealing. The doctor had given Camille an insight into how he viewed the world, how he justified his actions, how he might have deceived and defrauded his patients without a thought. 
even when I was when I was leaving the house, Rita Karbat was like, "Oh, Jan helped so many people, and the media are so much about this this bad stuff." Determined to have the last word, Karbat shouted, "Six thousand people are living in the Netherlands because of us." Six thousand kinder. Six thousand kinder. I was like, "Oh, you little narcissist!" <laughs> yeah. So was Carbat a fraud who got rich from lying to his patients? A narcissist who got a kick out of creating as much life as possible? Or simply a libertarian who wanted results? He could have been all of those things at the same time. Rita showed Camille out, escorting him to the Iron Gate. He walked back to Baron Dresch's station, his head spinning. They had both got away with something that day. Camille had recorded Carbat's last proper interview, and Carbat had been given a chance to explain himself without ever having to admit responsibility for his actions. Of course, Rita Carbat, his protective wife and former assistant, is still alive. Perhaps she might be able to give me some answers. So... We owe, we owe Rita the chance to talk about what we're saying about her on this podcast. Her name keeps coming up time and time again. And I have been trying so hard, trying so hard to contact her. She, the lawyer said she was no longer working with Rita, but she'd passed the message on. I still heard nothing. So then I got details of her new lawyer and I emailed him about four weeks ago. Got no reply. Um, so I'm going to ring him up because I want to know one way or another if she's going to going to be happy to talk to me. I, I have a feeling the answer is going to be no. Okay, so we're dialing now. Oh, him. Um, hello. The lawyer didn't know we were recording the conversation, so we're not going to play the audio. But I can tell you what he said. I'm not entitled to give any interviews whatsoever, and neither will Mrs. Carbat. They don't seek the news, shall we say, he told me. I then said, she really deserves the space to respond to what people have been saying about her. And he said, yeah, but she doesn't want to. It's just like that. I have to respect her wishes. I'm awfully sorry for you as a journalist, but I can't give you any comments. Neither will she. Getting people to speak on the record for this podcast hasn't been easy. I've been trying to find mothers who can tell me what it's like to find out that the baby you carried and raised was actually the child of your fertility doctor. But so far, I've drawn a blank. Both Marsha and Joey told me their mothers wouldn't speak to me. Our parents are not going to participate. They're really um, holding back on the media and they don't want to be in interviews or have any comments on it. Okay, that's fair enough and that's good to know. Marsha said she'd forward my request on to the other Carbat kids. No one has got back to me yet. Next time, there was one more thing Carbat told Camille during the interview. It was like, I brought some sperm to San Francisco and Miami. I'm going to investigate Carbat's American connection. 
If what he told me on the record is true, then he sold the sperm all around the world. And I'm going to uncover the stories of the other fertility doctors in the US, Canada and beyond. Carbat wasn't just a bad apple. He was one of an incredible number of rogue doctors prepared to betray their patients at their most vulnerable and use their own sperm to make them pregnant. How many cases like this have you seen? Worldwide, we're probably up to over 30 at this point. Certainly in the United States, in Canada, in South Africa, Tokyo, Belgium, the Netherlands, the UK, Germany. That is insane. Why are so many doctors prepared to do this? What does it tell us about the fertility industry? And is there anything that can stop it from happening again? The Immaculate Deception is a Something Else production. It was written and presented by me, Jenny Kleeman. Paul Smith is a producer, with additional production from Arlie Adlington. Mixing and sound design comes from Will Short at Spoke Media. The editor and executive producer is Peggy Sutton. Thank you to Magda Saron, Dan Cocker, Mark Rivers and Steve Ackerman. And thanks to Camille Balak for allowing us to share some of his Carbat tapes. Camille's book, All the Children of Louis, is available online in Polish. If you identify with any of the issues we're reporting on and have a story you'd like to share with us, our email address is deception at somethingelse.com.